0: Welcome to the Inspirational Insights, Insights to Action podcast. I'm Donna Jones, your host. What is simple is not always easy. In preparation for this conversation with Adam Kahnny today, I went on the internet and watched his TED Talk on power, love, and justice. And what a great talk. So lots of insights there. The intersection of love, power, and justice has many tensions, and no one knows that better than Adam because of the depth of experience he's had working around the world, working with tough, contentious issues. So today we're talking about the state of the world, the challenges we face. We're going to be asking Adam, what is going on? Sense-making, please. And then some practical things that we can do going forward. Adam, just by way of background, is the director of Rios Partners, international social enterprise that helps people move forward together on their most important and intractable issues. Adam's depth of experience comes from working in more than 50 countries with all levels of, of uh, society, of humanity, from executives to guerrillas to community activists to the United Nations. He's written four books, and the latest one is called Facilitating Breakthroughs." As a facilitator, I was very delighted to take a look at Adam's perspective on facilitation because right now the big question for me is how do we take the polarities that we're seeing in society? and unify, use these very fragmented environment that we're in to get a whole lot better at finding solutions using diverse points of view. As this conversation and others like this on this podcast shows, it is time to think very differently about reality, to adopt different perspectives, shift angles to see what cannot be seen when you use the same mindset persistently and consistently. The business. Agility Institute is dedicated to sharing stories that profile business agility, meaning the freedom, the flexibility, and the resilience to achieve the purpose of a business. Emergence Magazine is their premier publication, published four times a year, including exclusive stories by great thinkers and practitioners worldwide. Go to the businessagility.institute and look for the Emergence Magazine, plug in the code DAWNA into the subscription box, and you'll get a 10% discount. Thank you for supporting this podcast and for supporting Thinking in Business. Adam, thank you for being with us today. Let's start.
1: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Adam, let's just start with your big picture overview of the state of the world. Why not? And look at what do you think is going on? What do you see is going on? You've been reading Dynamics since time began in your work. What do you seeing?
1: What I'm seeing, or the thing I'm paying attention to, is the limits of unilateralism in a couple of respects. On the one hand, this idea that it's a big world, we can each just do what we want, put out as much carbon dioxide as we want, and we won't bump up against each other. That was never true, but it's now not true globally. And so the climate crisis and the pandemic related to encroaching on the habitats of other species and the loss of biodiversity and all this stuff you know more about than I do. One way of looking at it is all of this is related to the fact that we have to live with each other and with our other sentient beings more and more. So that's part of it. And the other side of it that I, that is the focus of my own Work as a facilitator, it's the limits of unilateralism in the sense that I can get things done or I can get where I'm trying to go by pushing for things to be the way I want them to be, regardless of what other people want, by bossing people about or forcing them. It doesn't mean that there's no room for that. There's room for unilateral action, unilateral creative acts. But in more and more places, whether it's in organizations or communities or nations, that just doesn't work. That's why my focus professionally and intellectually has been on we need more and better collaboration. And how do we achieve that?
0: Particularly when a lot of organizations block collaboration. They've designed it to be blocked because of the structure. If we were to remove those blocks to to collaboration, first of all, how might we do that? And secondly, what's possible?
1: Well, for me, the starting point is collaboration is not the only option. It's it's literally not possible to collaborate with everybody on everything. So it's always a choice. And there are three other options. When we're trying to change the way things are, we can force them to be the, the way we want them to be, regardless of what others think. We can adapt to them as they are, go along to get along, or we can try to exit. And I think in practice, we're all doing all four every day in different realms. But if and when we want to collaborate, or if and when we think we need to collaborate, for some people, it's their first choice. They're thrilled about it. For some people, it's their last choice. They, they'll do it when they have no other option. If and when we want to collaborate, how do we do it? And I'll tell you a story, that a short story that leads up to my current Answer to that question. I've been facilitating for 30 years. My specialty and the specialty of Rios is facilitating diverse groups, including people from different sectors and organizations and backgrounds, including people who don't agree with or like or trust each other, facilitating diverse groups to to effect change collaboratively. And I've done this all over the world. Four years ago, I was working in Colombia. Uh, this is in 2017, one year after the peace treaty between the government and the FARC guerrillas that had ended a 52-year civil war had been signed. And I've worked on and off in Colombia for a long time, including at the height of the war. But, but in this event in November 2017, I was working in uh, a part of the country that had been A site of great violence, the southwest of the country, with a group of leaders, business people, sugarcane growers, philanthropists, academics, indigenous people, Afro-Colombians, politicians, and members of the just demobilized FARC guerrilla army. So this uh, was, even by Rio's standards, a pretty diverse group. Uh, and the peace treaty had been signed, and now the question is, well, okay, if we're not going to kill each other, how are we going to rebuild this part of the country and create progress? And there was a man at the, who came to the workshop who I'd met before. He's quite a well-known Colombian. His name's Pacho de ru He used to be head of the Jesuit order in Colombia, and he was a very famous peacemaker. He'd done really courageous things during the war. Uh, in very remote parts of the country at, I think, great personal risk. And one week before this workshop, he had been appointed as the president of the the Colombian Commission for Truth Reconciliation and Non-Repetition. This is one of the institutions set up through the Peace Accords. Anyhow, I've known him a little bit for a long time, and I admire him enormously. And I was surprised he'd come to this, this little workshop In a remote area thought one week after having been appointed to this really big job he'd have other more important things to do but he said he was interested in this question of how do we collaborate across diversity and the first day of the workshop went well in the way a good workshop does people were starting to talk to each other all together in plenary and in small groups and building things with lego and writing things on post-it notes and flip charts and going for walks and eating together. And they were starting to relax and think that maybe, maybe they'd be able to achieve something together. So it was going well. And at the end of the first day, we break for dinner and Pacho comes running up to me. He's a very energetic uh, charismatic person. And he says, Adam, I see what you're doing. And I said, well, what am I doing, Pacho? And he said, you're removing the obstacles to the expression of the mystery. I really didn't have a clue what he was talking about, but I respect him a lot, and I was sure he was telling me something important. I sat with him at dinner for several hours. His English is not very good, and my Spanish is worse, and I didn't really get it. I know the mystery in Christian thought isn't like an Agatha Christie mystery that you solve. It's something essentially unknowable. I still don't really know what the mystery is, but I was very interested by this idea which I take to be a practical idea of removing obstacles to the expression of the mystery. Fast forward four years. So I had four years to think about what does that sentence mean? And here's my answer to your question. I've derived two things from that very interesting statement. The first is that this work, at least the work I do, or the work of enabling collaboration, is not about getting people to do things. I mention that because when I give talks about my work, 100% of the time, somebody will ask the question, how do you get people to come together or or trust each other or take action together? This question is so, comes up uh, so consistently that I, I think it's very important. What I always say is my experience is that I really can't get anybody to do anything, not as a facilitator. Not as a manager, not as a grandparent or a spouse. My capacity to get people to do things is very limited. I think especially if you're talking about collaborating rather than forcing, which is how I think about the essence of what I'm doing and what's needed in the world, then you can't get anybody to do anything. So what's the alternative? And here I think Pacho offered a very intriguing formulation. It's about removing obstacles. Removing the obstacles that get in the way of people doing what they need to do. So then the other part of it is obstacles to what? And what are the obstacles? (laughs) I think the obstacles to moving forward together, to collaborating to address the challenges of our time, they're obstacles to contribution, connection, and equity. And I think if you can remove obstacles to contribution, connection, and equity, You can really get a lot done. Or to put it more more mechanically, I think at least 75%, if not 100%, of facilitation is about enabling contribution, connection, and equity. If you want a fancier way to say that, or a more profound way of saying that, I would uh, refer to power, love, and justice. And we can come back to that because I have been thinking about those words for a long time. If you define them carefully, they really explain a lot. And then the last part of this is what are the obstacles to power, love, and justice? There's not a simple answer, but the general answer would be it's the structures we put in place that impede people contributing and connecting equitably. Even just asking the question in that way or phrasing it in that way, you can immediately think, well, gosh, organizational silos impede connection, not being anywhere near nature impedes connection, being cut off from your own heart impedes connection and contribution. Some people talking a lot and other people not talking all that's impedes equity, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's brilliant. And I do want to go back and talk about the love power dynamic, because I think that's the nub of polarity, particularly in the decision-making that we're witnessing at this moment. I noticed you work with space very effectively. What are the core things that you've learned from spaces that inform how well, how easy it is for people to work together with with high levels of diversity and conflict? Yeah,
1: well, I am very interested in spaces. I once had the privilege of hosting in my home a very uh, prominent Australian Aboriginal leader named Patrick Dodson, who's just an amazing person, and he said to me at the end of the week, because he was there for, I don't know, four or five days, he said, man, you really keep rearranging the chairs. He was making fun of me, and I guess what I was doing was a little silly or maybe obsessive or whatever. But what he was observing is I am very concerned about space, not just physical space where the chairs are, but but psychological space and political space and spiritual space. There's a general word in Japanese for this that Nonaka uses, He uses the word ba to refer to that space, or at least that's my understanding of the word ba, to refer to space. A simple way to think about this, I don't think it's very esoteric at all, is to realize that different spaces produce different kinds of outcomes, and a boardroom is different from a rec room, is different from a parliament, is different from a picnic table, is is different from a theater. Those are different spaces with different structures, different rules. It's not that one is better than the other, but they enable different things to happen. Uh, A classroom would be another good example. I think that the primary thing the facilitator is focused on, not necessarily alone, but involved in or paying attention to, is what's the space, the physical, psychological, political, spiritual space, that removes the obstacles to contribution, connection, and equity and enables a group to to meet and connect and talk and do stuff together.
0: Thank you. It came to my mind because when you're setting up a space to actually have these conversations and there was an example in the book that I read that I really appreciated because I did some work with the construction sector and I'd send them off on a walkabout on a on a, a golf course essentially but that's where some of the best work took place because they were relaxed they were casual they could actually talk to one another instead of posturing in the room and so I really appreciate your understanding of that and for anybody listening to this program it's an opportunity when you're going into a space to work with very diverse views To pay attention to something other than, you know, what we're gonna talk about, such a mental frenzy that can go on around the subject matter, the focus, the anticipation of conflict, and the fear around that, when in fact you can do so much just by creating the the optimum space for the conversation.
1: Donna, if you'll permit me, I'd like to extend on the specific example you gave, because in our workshops, one of the things we often do is to invite people to take a walk. And the instruction couldn't be simpler, look around the room, find the person most different from you, the person you never imagined you would talk to, and go for a walk with them for 30 or 45 minutes before lunch or whatever. There couldn't be a simpler process module, if you want to give it (laughs) a technical term. And yet, the people really love it. it. Consistently, people say, that was the best part of the workshop can we do that again tomorrow or next time i've been thinking about this for a long time be- because this is a consistent feedback i realized there's a mechanical reason why walking is powerful you're outside you're facing in the same direction you're not looking at your phone or your papers you're moving through the world together you're encountering stuff together some fork in the road or some flower or some obstacle or whatever so those are the mechanical reasons but a few years ago I was talking about this removing the obstacles with a very remarkable woman I've worked with in Mexico her name is Lucila Cerviche she's a a Catholic theologian and she said Adam I think there's a deeper reason why this walk is so powerful she had experienced the walk herself she said. In the traditional Catholic confessional, first you admit you are wrong, in other words, confess, and then you are forgiven, or whatever the technical term is, given absolution. But that's the sequence. And she said, the thing about the walk, Adam, is that the the order is the opposite. First, you are just a fellow human being. You're treated as a fellow human being. In other words, you're accepted for who you are, just somebody I'm having a walk with. Whether we like each other or don't, whether we're excited or worried about being together, but we're we're doing this thing as human beings. People, for whatever reason, don't want to or can't walk, then you can sit, but sit side by side, not facing each other. The first thing that's happening is you're being treated as a human being. And the second thing that happens is maybe as a result of that encounter, I will think about things differently or consider something or do something different. I thought that was so interesting that the human connection or the human acceptance comes first, the forgiveness, if you want to put it that way, and then maybe we'll choose to change. It's not an incidental matter, the walk.
0: No, not at all. I really appreciate you elaborating on that because there's another part to it actually, now you're taking me back into my own facilitation history, which spans about the same amount of time as yours does, but obviously in very different settings. But I can remember early days, I was doing some environmental policy work, and we had we had the activists and the industry people in the same space, and they were expecting just to have at her. And I guess, because I, I could just hear on the break, one turned to the other and said, you know, Don't tell anybody, but I actually agree with this guy. (laughs) He's supposed to be my enemy. It was fascinating to listen to how much of this was posturing versus getting down to talk about the issues at a human level. I really appreciate what you just said about the humanity of it.
1: Now you've reminded me of something else. I think there is a common misplaced hope in this work, which is that if we really talk to each other as human beings, we'll find that we agree. Sometimes that happens, but sometimes it doesn't. Uh, I had a facilitation experience a long time ago in Houston. I was facilitating with a longtime colleague of mine named Betty Sue Flowers, who's from there, who's very tuned into synchronicity. We were at a hotel in Houston, and in the next room was a convention of tattoo artists. We were going to take a break, and Betty Sue always being alert to unexpected opportunities said well hey uh, we're talking about the future of houston why does not everybody during the break talk to one of these tattooed people this was a long time ago tattooing was less common than it is now and we were a group of you know corporate and political leaders and they were these people with loud music and long hair and full body tattoos at the time this was really talking to the other and she said during the break each of us should interview one of these uh, people from the tattoo convention about how they see the situation in Houston we did and when we came back most people said some some variation of i talked to them and i thought they'd be really different but we both have daughters around the same age we found we're just human beings i had the opposite experience i talked to a guy and i said oh, what's that tattoo? Why, why do you have that tattoo? And he said, well, I'll tell you why I have that tattoo. Actually, my first tattoo was a swastika, which I like a lot, but I was getting in too much trouble. So I had this other thing tattooed on top of it. So I got to know him better. But I found, man, actually, we have a much more serious disagreement than I realized. The reason this is important <clears throat> is because if we found that when we talk to people or work with them, we would find we really agreed." That would be very easy. But often we find we actually don't agree and we're never going to agree. And how are we going to work together anyway? And I think that's a more common and challenging situation. And that for me has been one of the biggest surprises of my work is that contrary to popular belief, it is possible to work with people we do not agree with. In fact, we have to. And the people who understand this well better than civilians is politicians who are used to, yes, we disagree, but, you know, we're going to have to find a way to work this out. I want to question this common assumption that, well, we're going to find actually we we agree. Sometimes that's nice, but, but often not. So what are we going to do then?
0: Excellent question. I, I think the other part I'd like to explore is focus, because the, the obvious question that falls out of how do you work with people you absolutely do not agree with is in my mind is okay what are you focused on a lot of people get very apprehensive when they're coming into a high conflict situation it escalates in their head a lot sooner than it escalates in the room or or even if it never escalates in the room because their expectations dictate what's going on how do you find setting the focus so it is a shared interest when you're doing that interesting task of very different opinions working or very different stances looking at a similar issue?
1: Well, for me, there's a very straightforward answer to this question, maybe more than when I started this work in South Africa in 1991, I came into the conference center called the Moultour Conference Center. The project became known as the Moultour Scenario Exercise. It's a beautiful, small hotel in the wine country outside Cape Town. And The main conference room at the time, when I walked into it, was set up as an open rectangle. The tables were placed end to end to form a rectangle. And the chairs were put on the outside of the table, which was, I infer, the most common way for them to set up rooms. When they thought there were 30 people coming, that's how they set up the tables, which emphasizes the focus is on each other which isn't a bad thing. And there's times when that's useful, but just like the walk where you're focused on the world around you rather than each other, as you move forward in the same direction, facing in the same direction. What I did is I took out one side of the rectangle so that it was an open U facing a a very long whiteboard where I put flip charts Later uh, in my practice, 10 years later, I thought, okay, let's just take the tables out. But that's another story. It's almost always good to take the tables out. But the point about that simple rearrangement of physical space is now the focus was on the flip charts, or more specifically, on what we were building together rather than on each other. And this turns out to be a very important principle, simple principle is let's focus on the flip chart rather than each of us on our own notebook or the whiteboard, even if it's a Zoom whiteboard, rather than us each writing our own notes. And another version of this, which is surprisingly powerful, is let's use Lego blocks to build a model together. But what all of these examples have in common is the focus is on this understanding we're literally co-creating rather than on each other. Now, there are other times where it's useful to focus on each other and how are each of us part of things being the way they are. But I have not found that to be a good place to start. And this focusing on what we are creating together is very powerful or very crucial.
0: Absolutely agree. Now, let's circle back to that question of the mystery, the expression of the mystery, which I think is an absolutely fabulous comment. How does all of what we've talked about so far reveal the mystery and support the expression of the mystery?
1: Well, when we spoke a few weeks ago, you <laughs> mentioned or implied that you knew what it was. So how do you understand that term, the mystery? Because I'm no no further along i'll answer your question but i'm no further along in my understanding of the mystery than i was in 2017 so what do you think that means
0: well i think the beauty of it is that in in asking me that i'm sure every listener has their own (laughs) version of what the mystery means but my immediate instinct was this deep part of of being human that can do the impossible Mm -hmm. you know, the seemingly impossible. Joseph Chilton Pierce talked about it in his work. I reference it all the time. It is that deep creative ability uh, that you only release when you're faced with adversity. Mm -hmm. Having experienced that myself, I look at it and I go, okay, the expression of the mystery is that expression of the unknown within you Mm -hmm. and the unknown within the collective group. That's how I would interpret it.
1: So let me say the closest or the best I've been able to understand it is about 10 years ago, a colleague of mine named Otto Scharmer gave me a little piece of paper on which it was typed a quote from Martin Luther King Jr., where he said, power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. I like the statement uh, of Pacho Duru. There was just something about this that struck me this is worth investigating. I've spent quite a lot of time trying to understand what King meant by that. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't misunderstanding him or thinking he meant what I would have meant or making assumptions about what he meant. So I read some biographies of King. There's an amazing biography. I think the author's name is Taylor Branch, if I'm not mixing it up. I discovered that King wrote his doctoral dissertation on several theologians, but one of them was a man named Paul Tillich, who I'd never heard of at the time, although he's a very well-known theologian, German-American Protestant existential theologian, German-American Protestant existential theology. I have to say it's not really my thing, but Tillich wrote a book called Power, Love, and Justice. a very hard book to understand. I've tried about 30 times, but the definitions he gives of power, love, and justice I use now, and I'm going to explain in a minute, not because I'm a follower of Tillich, but because I think they explain a lot, if not everything that I deal with in my work. There are many definitions of power, love, and justice, but the reason I religiously, if you'll excuse the pun, uh, rely on Tillich's definitions is I think if you understand, or if you use these, you'll understand a lot. The first thing is he defines power as the drive of everything living to realize itself with increasing intensity and extensity. This idea of power being not power over, but power to. This drive to grow, to become oneself, to realize one's destiny or ambition or or do one's job. He defines love as the drive to reunite the separated, which, by the way, implies that there is a unity that's been obscured or fragmented. It's about reunite. The reason I'm mentioning this now is because both of these are, he uses the word drive. My understanding of this is that, yes, these are innate human drives. It, It relates to what you said, which don't have to be created or gotten or pushed, they have to be released. And that comes back to removing the obstacles. I worked a lot with that, uh, with power and love, but I was always wondering about this third part, the section of his book on justice is, is even harder to understand than the other two sections. By justice, Tillich means the form or the structure that enables power and love to be exercised. This is easiest to see as injustice. Injustice is when the power of one is preventing the power of another. If you want a gruesome but accurate example, it's Derek Chauvin kneeling on the neck of George Floyd, where Chauvin is using his power literally to extinguish, suffocate, extinguish, snuff out the power of Floyd if that's what injustice is justice is the way of setting things up the structure the form the direction that enables everybody's power and love to be exercised this is not at all straightforward there's lots of tensions and contradictions and paradoxes in this i don't mean to imply it's simple at all but the ide- the idea that that all of us, or most all of us, in one way or another, in our own way, are trying to have a drive to to power and to love and to justice. That's my conclusion. At least everybody I've met, I won't say everybody in the universe, but everybody I've met is trying in their own way. Now they have different ideas about how they understand or how they want to exercise or how they balance power, love, and justice. but. But those are, I think you use the word, intrinsic or innate drives. And therefore, in a way, the easy job of the facilitator or the leader or the friend is, how can I help you remove the things that are standing in the way of that, which are manifest?
0: It took me a long time to figure out in my in my work that I was really facilitating energy. And the question was, which way was it directed? So it was just a matter of of if it was against each other, then it was simply a matter of refocusing it on something they could do together instead. So that's an incredibly helpful observation you just made, Adam. The other part of it leads me back to polarities in the world today. The, the decisions that we're seeing in the pandemic mandates to get vaccinated versus the unvaccinated as an example, there's love and there's power inherent in that dynamic. How do you bring it into the middle or bring it into something higher where you can actually work with those polarities to beautiful benefit?
1: I use the word polarity a lot. It's a very elegant idea, uh, the idea of a polarity. And I find in my work and my life that All the important and interesting and difficult things are not choices but polarities. There are several authors who've done great work on polarities, but the one who I've relied on is Barry Johnson, uh, who's written several lovely books on polarities, including a new book called The Point He Makes, which I think most authors make, is the definition of a polarity is there's two things you can do, and you can't choose one or the other. You have to do them both. And the great example he gives is in breathing, you have to inhale and exhale. You don't have the committee in favor of inhaling and the committee in favor of exhaling. You don't have the demonstration of the inhalers versus the exhalers. Everybody knows you got to do both, not at the same time, but you need to do both. There are many polarities in facilitation, but one of the most central ones is, as you said, the polarity between power and love. I think it's important to understand that this is a permanent tension. The way I think about it, it's not about meeting in the middle. It's not about compromising. If power is about ambition and drive and getting your job done and growing and realizing yourself, and love is about connecting to others, the the right answer, I don't think, is okay. We'd like you to contribute, but not too much. We'd like you to connect, but not too much. I actually don't want you to meet in the middle. The challenge is how do we get a hundred percent of your power and a hundred percent of your love? The how or the structure for that relates to justice. But to come back to the polarity itself, this is attention. There are so many different ways to look at the pandemic situation. Okay. And I think about it differently than I did a few years ago. But at least one dimension of it is this tension between my bodily autonomy, my life, my choice, my doing what I want to do, my realizing myself, that's the power dimension of it, and realizing that I am in community and in relationship and what I do affects what happens to other people because of the transmission of the airborne virus. And what we do in Canada affects what happens in other places, including uh, when we buy up five times more vaccines than we need for our population. By definition, these don't have a straightforward resolution or a compromise. The reason these concepts are useful Mm in the concept of power and love and justice And the concept of polarity is because it enables us to say, oh, okay, I get what's happening here. Now, I still have to do something about it, but at least I can understand what I'm dealing with.
0: What can people do individually and personally to find inspiration in the tension? There's a certain amount of fragmentation that takes place when there's that much push to, to go in a particular direction. What what can people do to actually work with the tensions of today to facilitate their own breakthrough, if I could just use the title of your most recent book, to facilitate their own breakthrough in the context of not knowing what's going to happen next, not knowing how this is going to play out. There's a lot of unknowns, which can be extremely exciting, and it can also scare people.
1: Maybe the most important thing I have to say, and in a way, the function of the book or my books is... Is just to say it is possible. It is possible to collaborate. It is possible to move forward together, even with people who are different from you. I studied physics and the existence proof is an important thing. Prove that this, this can exist. Doesn't mean it's easy, doesn't mean it's straightforward, doesn't mean it's guaranteed, but it is possible. I know it, I've seen it hundreds of times, I've written about it in great detail with footnotes, but this isn't. Just something I thought of hypothetically is possible. A second idea related to this is relax or make your peace with the tension, because my understanding is whenever there's a group of people, there's always differences and disagreements and conflicts. Now, it might be buried, it might be violent, it might be brushed over, it might be minor, it might be major. But there's always difference. Rather than try to smooth it all over or or run away from it, I, I hate conflict as much as the next person, but to recognize that if you can work with it, then it can be a source of great energy and creativity and progress. And thirdly, and this is the, the bottom line of this particular book is we navigate through this space of tensions and contradictions and disagreements and uncertainty and lack of control by paying attention, by paying attention to what's going on right now in the larger context, in the group, in myself, and given what I understand or perceive or sense to be going on, what do I need to do next? That's that's all we can do is make a wiser decision about what to do next.
0: Beautifully stated. Thank you. I appreciate that. Because that takes us right back to decision-making, which is the most powerful place anybody can stand in. What decision? What do I do with this? Who do I become? And what's my next move in the moment? Adam, thank you very much. Where do people go for more?
1: You can look at com. And she'll bring you to the work my colleagues and I do. The book is called Facilitating Breakthrough, How to Remove Obstacles, Bridge Differences, and Move Forward Together.
0: To pretend that we don't need to change ourselves in the context of very rapid change is a bit of an illusion. The opportunity now is to really step into the messy parts of change To become more whole, the question is, who do we become through what is challenging? My consulting work involves three pillars, decision-making in complexity, navigating and expanding awareness of context. That's the one pillar. The second is about adaptive agility and capacity, developing that personally and internally, accessing a wider range of intelligences. The third pillar is self-development, becoming very strongly connected to your fullest potential, your wider range of of abilities and capabilities so that you can live the life that is fulfilling and contributes to a better world. We've become so disconnected from the natural world that it is time we reconnect and regenerate the health of all the systems that form life on the planet, at home and at work. My name is Donna Jones. You can follow me on Medium. Connect to me on LinkedIn, D-A-W-N-A-H-J-O-N-E-S, Donna Jones, or on Twitter at E-P Donna, D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones, or you can connect to me on Instagram at Insightful Donna. See you at the next episode. If you enjoyed this program, please share it. Thank you for joining me.